Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. So, Mr. Tillerson, uh, Mr. Secretary, we appreciate you being here. We're having a little bit of a discussion about the timing issue. I, I, uh, we do have a lot of other things happening today, and I, I really would like to finish this in one round. Uh, so what I think I'm going to do without, uh, uh, I think what we'll do, Senator Cardin, if it's okay with you, is let's put six minutes on the clock, and if we really need to have a second round for some reason, we will. I'm open to discussion about that right now, if you wish. But I think six minutes sounds fair on the first round. I, I don't want to preclude a member on either side that believes that they need additional time for a second round from having that second round, but I would encourage our members to try to be efficient on the use of their time. Yeah. So um, I want to begin by uh, saying that uh, last night about 1020, uh, we finished negotiating uh, a Russia bill to be attached to the Iran bill and we're able to gavel in the Senate last night and have uh, Senator McConnell file cloture on it. Um, and I just want to thank Senator Cardin and his staff along with my staff uh, for what I think was uh, an incredible effort uh, to bring balance to a bill, uh, but to send a very strong, strong message to, to Russia. And uh, it was a cooperative effort between the Foreign Relations Committee, but also the Banking Committee, which meant uh, a number of senators end up being involved. But uh, I really do think we've ended up with a very good piece of legislation. And uh, Senator Cardin, I want to thank you for the way that you have worked with us. And I want to thank all the senators here for the issues that you've brought up uh, along the way to help us make sure that we try to try to deal with the issues that were important to this committee. Mr. Mr. Chairman, on that point, um, let me just uh, underscore the points that you've made. Uh, this was a very uh, challenging negotiations between the banking leadership and the Senate Foreign Relations leadership. And I want to thank you for the manner in which those negotiations took place. I encourage the members of the committee to, to read the, the filed amendment. I am extremely pleased with the way that we were able to, to manage that negotiations. Uh, on, on our side, I, I particularly want to acknowledge uh, Senator Shaheen and Menendez, who were uh, very helpful in, in putting together uh, this package. Uh, it does incorporate not only the work that this committee did on the democracy initiative that was passed out of this committee, but also two other bills, one that I authored with Senator McCain that deals with codification of executive sanctions against Russia as well as additional sanctions against Russia. Uh, and uh, that is included in the uh, amendment. The other is a bill that was authored by Senator Graham that I worked with him on that provides for congressional review if the administration uh, desires to remove any of the sanctions in regards to Russia. So I really believe that we did accomplish uh, what we set out to do, where we had initially 10 Democrats and 10 Republican senators who had joined together in this effort, and the chairman protected our work product, and I, I thank him very much. Yeah. And I, I do, just because I know we have a lot of media here, those bills are not in this bill. Those bills are not in this bill. But some of the some of the topics that were brought up in these bills are points that we addressed in the overall legislation we developed. So, uh, but I appreciate the input of all. And we'll turn to the hearing. I do want to say we have a number of people here in the audience. Um, 
I, uh, I know people are pretty passionate about issues right now, and I just have to say that uh, I don't like for anybody to be arrested. Um, I asked someone to leave a meeting, and what that means is you're immediately arrested. I was able to go down and get them out of jail, but I'm not going to do it anymore, okay? So, um, so uh, just be warned that if you stand up or make a noise or do something that you know to be inappropriate, we're going to ask you to, to be escorted out. And there's nothing I can do about it beyond that. Um, so please don't do that. This is a democracy in action, and this is our ability to express ourselves in appropriate ways. But uh, you're here. We're glad you're here. But please uh, conduct yourselves in an appropriate way. So with that, we'll move to the business at hand. I want to thank Secretary Tillerson for being here. I want to thank him for what I believe has been unprecedented outreach to this committee and others who uh, have wanted to give input. Um, I share with people all over the country that obviously uh, this administration is new. Um, some of the approaches have been very different, but one of the things that Secretary Tillerson has been willing to do and wants to do and seeks to do is to get input from the committee, and I appreciate that very much with all that you've got to do to organize. Um, so that's been unprecedented. Um, I do want to say, in addition to that, I know some people are going to be taking shots. That's what happens in a budget committee uh, meeting, especially one like this one. Uh, I think, though, I can speak for most everyone here. Um, I'll speak for myself, and I, I know others feel the same way. I am very thankful that you are serving as Secretary of State. I am very thankful that Secretary Mattis is serving as Secretary of Defense. I am very thankful that Mr. McMaster is serving as National Security Advisor. And I just have to tell you that around the world, uh, people are thankful that you are in these positions. Um, and I think that in spite of the fact that they may disagree with some of the policies that are coming forth, the fact that someone like you who is as seasoned as you are in this position gives me and a lot of people here and a lot of people around the country and a lot of people around the world a lot of comfort. So I want to thank you for your willingness to serve in the capacity that you are. Um, uh, on that point, I will say we sat down yesterday in the middle of the Russian negotiations. I took some time out to sit down with my staff, and we began going through the budget that you're presenting today. And after about five minutes, uh, I said, this is a total waste of time. I don't want to do this anymore. And the reason it's a waste of time is I think you know that um, the budget that's been presented is not going to be the budget we're going to deal with, just not. And um, I mean, the fact is that, you know, Congress uh, has a tremendous respect for the diplomatic efforts that are underway, the, the aid that we provide in emergency situations, and it's likely, and, and by the way, this happens with every presidential budget, every presidential budget. This one in particular, though, is likely, uh, the what comes out of Congress is likely not going to resemble uh, what is being presented today. And so I felt it was a total waste of time to go through the line items and even discuss them because it's not what is going to occur. So I say that with all due respect and pointing out that uh, really over the last 17 years, um, you know, our nation has been unwilling to deal with the fiscal issues that we face. And so 70% of the budget is off budget. Uh, we are heading towards a fiscal calamity. Everyone knows it, sees it coming, and I realize that this president took a, an inordinate amount of cuts in this particular area to demonstrate that he was trying to address fiscal issues because, in fairness, 
unwilling to address all the other issues that are driving spending so much. So we understand that. Uh, it's, it's happened on both sides of the aisle for at least 17 years, and, you know, that's kind of where we are. So um, until we have a person who runs for president who says they're going to serve one term and they're going to try to deal with these issues, unfortunately, uh, we're heading to a place that, uh, to me, is, is a fiscal calamity. So what I do appreciate about what you're doing today and what you're doing within the department, the fact that you ran a major company that had about the same amount of employees as the State Department has, what I appreciate is what you're doing today is bringing forth a debate that we've needed to have for a long time, and that is not focusing on everything we can do, but what we should be doing as a nation. So I appreciate that very much. Since Congress is likely to write its own appropriations bills and spending, what I hope we'll spend most of our time on today, instead of taking pot shots, uh, although everybody uh, will do whatever they wish, I know, but I hope that you'll help us lay out some of the things that you really think are appropriate for us to look at and different ways of approaching, uh, whether it's international organizations, which many of us support, or whether it's how the State Department is going to be run. So we thank you for being here today. Um, I respect you very much. I respect the role that you're playing for our nation. And with that, I'll turn to our ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, let me also welcome the Secretary here uh, in order to discuss the uh, proposed budget and other issues that are important for our national security. I just want to make an observation before I start my, my formal statement that reviewing the administration's FY18 budget is a waste of time. Um, I know that we're going to write our own budget. Yesterday I was in Ellicott City, which suffered from a major, major flood almost a year ago. And I was talking to a federal administrator there, not from State Department, it was a different agency, about the tools that we need to make available for the businesses in Ellicott City in order to recover from that horrible tragedy. And that the President's FY18 budget for that agency would not allow the federal partner to continue providing mentoring services to the businesses. And that it was a challenge for the administrator to be able to carry this out with the instructions being given by OMB in regards to budget issues. So, Mr. Chairman, I don't think the FY18 budget review is a waste of time. I think we'll write our own budget, but I do think it has a chilling impact in State Department with the career people trying to carry out their missions, believing that their supervisors have a different vision as to what is necessary to carry out that mission. We meet at a challenging time for the State Department and for our nation. Mr. Secretary, we meet at a time of deep and mounting concern regarding the tone, substance, and trajectory of your administration's foreign policy. Seventy years ago this month, one of your predecessors, George Marshall, delivered a speech that helped cement his reputation as a key architect of the post-war efforts to build a liberal international order. He was present at the creation. My concern today, quite frankly, is that your administration may go down in history as being present at the destruction of that order we have worked so hard to support and that has so benefited our security and prosperity and ideals. Mr. Secretary, I'm deeply concerned with the direction that President Trump appears to 
to intend on taking our country and the world with it. Indeed, no matter where we look around the world today, it seems that America's interests and values in the international system which has led is under threat and under pressure. Most troubling, much of the recent pressure is coming not only from external forces and foes, but also from the President of the United States and from your administration. I cannot tell you how devastating the President's decision to walk away from the Paris Accords was, not only to our allies abroad, but to also to many Americans. The decision to abdicate America's leadership sent shockwaves around the globe, raising concerns about our fundamental engagement as a stakeholder in the international order that the United States has worked so hard to help build and lead over the past seven decades. I truly believe that climate change will be a defining issue for our generation, not just an environmental or security issue or even an economic issue, although they're all those, but a moral issue in which our success or failure as stewards of a nation's interests and shapers of global interests will rise or fall. In your confirmation hearing, you said in response to one of my questions, I think it's important that the United States maintain its seat at the table on the conversations around and how to address threats of climate change, which do require a global response. No one country is going to solve this alone." End quote. Well, today we find that we have left our seat at the table and shredded the efforts of the international community to respond to climate change, and we stand alone. When President Trump repudiated the Paris, he repudiated all our partners in the international community, indeed the very idea of an international community. It was, to quote from an op-ed penned by two of your colleagues, General H.R. McMaster and Gary Cohn, the encapsulation of a view that, and I quote, the world is not a global community, but an arena where nations, non-governmental actors, and businesses engage and compete for advantage. Rather than deny this element, nature of international affairs, we embrace it. So we've given up on the international community? These hard words are hard to read. President Truman once described the Marshall Plan as the dividing line between the old era of national suspicions, economic hostility, and isolationism, and the new era of mutual cooperation to increase prosperity of people throughout the world. And I would agree, Mr. Secretary, that in advancing this new era of mutual cooperation, that successive bipartisan administrations effectively put America first. A return to the old era, be it by walking away from Paris or by the President's refusal to pledge to honor our Article 5 commitments to NATO, or proposing a budget that would abruptly terminate key development investments in dozens of countries, we find America isolated alone and last. America's leadership and engagement on global issues and with global leaders is perhaps more vital today than ever before, and there is simply no substitute for presidential commitment to American leadership and engagement. America's first approach risks undermining key tools and mechanisms that enable the United States' leadership in the world, and I am deeply concerned that your administration's approach does not place America first, but rather leaves America alone and places our interests and values at risk. Our positions as leaders of the free world is at risk. The ideas of a democracy as a model of diplomacy, as a force multiplier, and development as a catalyst for change are being significantly challenged. The idea of a Europe whole and free that well springs our security and prosperity for the past 70 years is now being undermined, including by the President himself, who hurls insults at the Mayor of London following a terrorist incident and appears indifferent at best to our treaty commitments to our European allies. 
Russia and China appeared to be elevated to privileged positions ahead of our allies in a new game of great power politics, while treaties like allies like Australia and the Republic of Korea and democratic allies and partners seeking to uphold international norms and standards are subject to bullying. The leaders of Egypt and Philippines and others who commit devastating human rights offenses are embraced, while the rights and aspirations of the Egyptian people and the Filipino people are dismissed. Russia has attacked our democracy, illegally annexed Crimea, and invaded eastern Ukraine, yet President Trump and your administration seems hell-bent on finding accommodations and appeasements, even exploring how to return seize Russian spy facilities in the United States, which presumably Mr. Putin would be able to once again put to good use. As I've said before, democracy does not defend itself. We, those of us on this dais and those of us in this room, must defend democracy and must defend the notion of good governance. We know that the Americans de derive its strength from its values, and we must never retreat from that core concept. Yet, when you suggested in a speech at the Department of State earlier this year that we could divorce our values from our policies, you su suggested such a retreat. The deep cuts to international affairs spending in your budget proposal is an, is an approach to American foreign policy that is nothing less than devastating assault on America's interests and values. What is most perplexing to me about your efforts to gut international fair spending is that Defense Secretary, Mr. Mattis, uh, made it clear that that is critically important development assistance to our national security. Slashing our foreign operations and foreign assistance makes the world more dangerous for Americans and for America. Yet that is precisely what that budget would do. The budget takes a penny-wise, pound-foolish approach that will cost lives and endanger Americans here at home. The proposed cut to the State Department of Foreign Assistance budget suggested by you and by the Trump administration will fatally undermine our ability to renew and revise our leadership and will leave us less safe and less secure in an increasing complex world unable to advance our ideals or to secure prosperity. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts and views on how this budget advances our interests and values around the world. But I can tell you that my starting point is to, is, is to be prepared to work with Democratic and like-minded Republican colleagues to make sure nothing remotely close to this budget is enacted by Congress. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, since I know you just made an announcement before you begin your opening comments, would you like to, to go ahead and share with us what has just occurred and then do your opening statement? Well, some of you may have seen a press release that was put out just before I arrived. Uh, announcing that at the President's direction, the Department of State has secured the release of Otto Warmbier from North Korea. Uh, he is on his way en route home to be reuni reunited with his family. Um, we continue our discussions with the North Korean regime uh, regarding the release of the three other American citizens that have been detained. Uh, we have no comment on Mr. Warmbier's condition out of respect to him and the family, uh, and that is the statement that was released. Very good. Well, listen, we look forward to your opening comment and questions. Thank you again for being here. Um, and you can begin with that if you would. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this administration's State Department and USAID request for fiscal year 2018. As we all know, America's global competitive advantages and standing as a leader are under constant challenge. The dedicated men and women of the State Department and USAID carry out the important and often perilous work 
of advancing America's interest every day, 24-7, 365 days a year. That mission is unchanged. However, the State Department and USAID, like many other institutions here and around the world, have not evolved in their responsiveness as quickly as new challenges and threats to our national security have changed and are changing. We are challenged to respond to a post-Cold War world that set in motion new global dynamics and a post-9-11 world characterized by historic new threats that present themselves in ways never seen before, enabled by technological tools that we have been ill-prepared to engage. The 21st century has already presented many evolving challenges to U.S. national security and economic prosperity. We must develop proactive responses to protect and advance the interest of the American people. With such a broad array of threats facing the United States, the fiscal year 2018 budget request of $37.6 billion aligns with the administration's objective of making America's security our top priority. The first responsibility of government is the security of its own citizens, and we will orient our diplomatic efforts toward fulfilling that commitment. While our mission will also be focused on advancing the economic interest of the American people, the State Department's primary focus will be to protect our citizens at home and abroad. Our mission is at all times guided by our longstanding values of freedom, democracy, individual liberty, and human dignity. The conviction of our country's founders is enduring, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. As a nation, we hold high the aspiration that all will one day experience the freedoms we have known. In our young administration's foreign policy, we are motivated by the conviction that the more we engage with other nations on issues of security and prosperity, the more we will have opportunities to shape the human rights conditions in those nations. History has shown that the United States leaves a footprint of freedom wherever it goes. Ensuring the security and prosperity of the American people and advancing our values has necessitated difficult decisions in other areas of our budget. The fiscal year 2018 budget request includes substantial funding for many foreign assistance programs under the auspices of USAID and the State Department. But we have made hard choices to reduce funding for other initiatives. Even with reductions in funding, we will continue to be the leader in international development, global health, democracy, and good governance initiatives, as well as humanitarian efforts. If natural disasters or epidemics strike overseas, America will respond with the care and support it always has. And I'm convinced we can maximize the effectiveness of these programs and continue to offer America's helping hand to the world. This budget request also reflects a commitment to ensure every tax dollar spent is aligned with the Department's and USAID's mission-critical objectives. The request focused the State Department and USAID's efforts on missions which deliver the greatest value and opportunity of success for the American people. The State Department and USAID budget increased over 60% from fiscal year 2007 reaching a record high $55.6 billion in fiscal year 2017. Recognizing this rate of increase in funding is not sustainable. The fiscal year 2018 budget request 
seeks to align the core missions of the State Department with historic funding levels. We believe this budget also represents the interests of the American people, including responsible stewardship of the public's money. I know there is intense interest in prospective State Department and USAID redesign efforts. We have just completed collecting information on our organizational processes and culture through a survey that was made available to every one of our state and USAID colleagues. Over 35,000 surveys were completed, and we also have held in-person listening sessions with approximately 300 individuals to obtain their perspective on what we do and how we do it. I met personally with dozens of team members who spoke candidly about their experiences. From this feedback, we have been able to get a clear overall view of our organization. We have no preconceived outcomes, and our discussions of the goals, priorities, and direction of the State Department and USAID are not token exercises. The principles for our listening sessions and subsequent evaluation of our organization are the same as those which I stated in my confirmation hearing for our foreign policy. We will see the world for what it is, be honest with ourselves and the American people, follow the facts where they lead us, and hold ourselves and others accountable. We are still analyzing the feedback we have received, and we expect to release the final findings of the survey soon. From all of this, one thing is certain. I'm listening to what my people tell me are the challenges facing them and how we can produce a more efficient, effective State Department and USAID. And we will work as a team and with the Congress to improve both organizations. Throughout my career, I have never believed, nor have I ever experienced, that the level of funding devoted to a goal is the most important factor in achieving it. Our budget will never determine our ability to be effective. Our people will. My colleagues at the State Department and USAID are a deep source of inspiration, and their patriotism, professionalism, and willingness to make sacrifices for our country are our greatest resource. I am confident that the U.S. State Department and USAID will continue to deliver results for the American people. I thank you for your time and am happy now to answer your questions. Thank you. I'm going to use uh, just a portion of my time, I think. If you could, um, since there will be an appropriations process that's underway uh, soon, when do you expect to have the, uh, the, the, your thoughts together on how the State Department itself will be reorganized? Uh, well, Senator, as I indicated, we've just completed an important listening phase. Right. Uh, I've had an initial readout. I'll, re I'll get a final report. Uh, I'm interviewing a couple of individuals who will come in and help us now with the next stage, which is the redesign effort itself, which will, be, which will involve the colleagues in the State Department and USAID. That effort likely will, will have that framed uh, over the course of the summer. The effort itself will likely get underway sometime in August, September timeframe when we have our pathway forward, the process, how we want to engage our colleagues, mm -hmm. how we want to get at various elements and themes that emerged from the listening session. Uh, some of this is work process. Some of it is how we handle people. Some of it is how decisions are made. It's a very broad uh, set of issues, which were quite informative. So. We've got to map out how do we want to get at each of those, but the work itself will start towards the end of the year. Hopefully, we will have some clarity around what that looks like 
by the end of this year, early next year, we would begin implementation. And when you say this year, you mean this fiscal year? Uh, this calendar year. Calendar year. Sorry. So we're likely, as we move through the appropriations process, likely not to have the benefit of that effort. It'll take place after the appropriations for this next year are in place. Can you, I know it's sometimes hard for State Department employees to speak, if you will, truth to power when people are sitting there talking with them about the future and sometimes their future. Um, can you give us some general uh, contours uh, of what, as you're talking with folks, you're, you're hearing from them relative to the, the actual State Department operations? I'd be happy to. The several themes emerged, and I think the overarching uh, theme, obviously, though, is the extraordinary dedication, patriotism of the men and women in the State Department and USAID and why they undertake a career like this. And that is a strength that we will build upon. What what we heard uh, from a number of people is they are dedicated to this broad mission of representing America's interest around the world. But from time to time, uh, not just now, but historically as well, there have been mixed messages uh, within the department, between the department and USAID, between the State Department and embassies, missions themselves. So greater clarity around how the mission is defined and how direction is given. There are a significant layers, layering of work processes and approvals required to deliver on mission. Uh, some of these are imposed by State Department procedures and rules. Some of them are imposed by the Congress in how appropriations and programs are established and approved. All well intended to monitor and ensure that we're delivering on what we've been asked to deliver, but it does create a number of of duplicative layers that create real obstacles for people to deliver on mission. And it adds cost, obviously. Uh, we also heard a theme that they do not feel that people are held accountable for their work in the State Department, that poor performers are not dealt with. And, you know, the people in the State Department know who's getting the work done and who's not getting the work done. And it's demoralizing to them when they see that we don't deal with those who are not delivering on their responsibilities. That gets to how we uh, praise performance, how we give people feedback, how we work to improve their performance. So we have a number of human resources processes that we believe can be improved and a number of leadership areas that need to be addressed. So most of the themes have to do with, and this was the nature though of what we wanted to engage people with, is not, you know, is this the right objective or are these the right organizational boxes? Tell us how you get your work done and tell us what gets in the way of you getting your work done and what frustrates you because that translates to inefficiency and ineffectiveness. As I said, we have no pre preconceived notions going in. It would have been very easy to approach this, take the organization chart, start collapsing boxes, start making it flatter in an uninformed way. I don't have any number in mind as to what the efficiency will be, whether it's going to be 10 percent, whether it's going to be 25, 30. We're going to let the redesign drive what those efficiencies will be. That's my experience in doing this in very large organizations, both in the private sector and in the nonprofit sector, where I've taken a similar approach. At the end of it, we capture significant efficiencies, but let's let, that, let's let the, the, the work of the redesign drive that, not go in and say, I'm looking for 20 percent because those generally are not sustainable changes then. Mm -hmm. So um, much of that we can deal with, by the way, with the State Department authorization. I will say we're moving along. I know Senator Cardin and I have a meeting today, but many of the things you just addressed, I know in the last administration, 
they began to see the State Department uh, authorization process as a tool for them to help cause the department to run better, and I hope you'll work with us in that regard. I'm going to reserve my last 37 seconds for an interjection at some point, but uh, thank you, Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to follow up on the, um, this reorganization and your uh, uh, desire to make sure you work with Congress on that. Uh, because I think Chairman raises a good point. We're working, working on a State Department authorization, which we're the authorizing committees. We may have some views. It may be consistent or it may be inconsistent, but we're the policy arm, so we do that. The appropriators are going to pass a budget. They're going to do that. And that budget may very well be consistent or inconsistent with the way that you're moving forward. So if we don't have that update, we've asked for an update, and I understand you're in a process. And our staff, nor myself, have been given any briefings as to how the reorganization is coming along. So let me just give you a, a, one practical example. Uh, you, you couldn't remove the ambassador on trafficking because that's set up by statute. But you could re remove the ambassador on gender issues because that's not set up by statute. So Congress may want to weigh in now to let you know we want an ambassador on gender issues. So if we don't have that close working relationship, it's going to be very difficult to get an agreement on how this committee operates or the Appropriations Committee operates consistent of what you're trying to accomplish. Well, first, uh, Senator, we welcome the input at all times on the, the wishes of Congress, what your priorities are. Uh, as you point out, we have a large number of special envoys, special representatives. I think there's some 70 plus of them. We, we, what we have done is obviously those that are required by statute, uh, we've left incumbents in place if they wanted to continue. So all of those that require us to have someone in the job, some people are, are double hatting, they're doing, a, doing two jobs at this point. Uh, but we've left this alone. We, it, as I said, it'd be very easy to go ahead and just tell you, look, we're just gonna collapse all of this into bureaus. But I, that would be prejudging an outcome, and I'm trying to let I'm trying to get input on this. Well, so. understand, Congress and previous Congresses have spoken on these by by statutes, but we've had traditions here of strong support for particular functions. I agree with you that that needs to be looked at. But if you do it in isolation of working with us, we're going to have a collision. We have no intention of doing it in isolation. What I'm I hope I'm, I'm, I'm I hear, I hear trying to give you a sense of where we well, are in the I, exercise. Well, my concern is the train is leaving the, the station in regards to the appropriations bill and the authorization bill, and your process won't conclude a lot of these issues until after those trains have, have departed. We've got to get better input as to your thinking as we move through this well, process. Well, I think that perhaps the difference in how we're thinking about this and not a, a just it's what people think about things differently the effort that we're undertaking is to institutionalize change so that it stays. And, and we capture now and forevermore these, these I, I think I understand. I understand we're working a, a fiscal yeah. year budget, and I know it's, it's I, hard for people to know where to, where we, to fund. We want to so give you the authority the you need to run your agency as efficiently as you possibly can. That, we, we, there's no disagreement. How you put a spotlight on different priorities is something that Congress has some strong views. That's why we, we welcome that. That's why we set up these special yeah, agents. We welcome let, that. Let me just ask you quickly: any corruption priorities in the budget? I had a hard time finding, as the budget was submitted, a commitment to fighting corruption, which is something that we talked about during your confirmation hearing, and you were pretty committed about. Am I missing something? Well, we in all of the. Uh, 
in particular whether it's in development areas or in law enforcement areas, uh, we have looked carefully in particular at countries of particular focus. We have done our best to preserve our ability to continue those efforts. For instance, in, in the Triangle Country areas of Central America through the initiatives there and other initiatives that we're working collaboratively with the Department of Homeland Security and others uh, to maintain our efforts towards strengthening law enforcement, strengthening the judicial system, uh, strengthening the court's ability to prosecute corruption, because we've made progress down there and we do not want to lose that momentum. So we have looked in particular areas of the world where that has been a priority, and we see the opportunity to capture lasting gains. We're trying to make sure we don't give ground to any place that we have current efforts underway. But we are looking at also ways to execute on that mission by bringing others in, uh, seeking other contributors, finding other ways to enable that. Uh, in regards to the Paris Agreement, um, you heard my opening statement. Did you change your view on that, or is this a matter that was just a political decision made by the administration? Uh, my view never changed, uh, Senator, from what I shared with you. It was run through an, an interagency process. I would tell you that the president was quite deliberative uh, on the issue and took some time to come to his decision, particularly waiting until he had heard from European uh, counterparts in the G7 on it. So my view didn't change. My views were heard out. I'll, I respect that the president uh, heard my views, but I respect the decision he's taken for the I appreciate that. That's, that's pretty clear, uh, and I can understand. Uh, I want to ask one more question, if I might, and that is, as you heard from the chairman and, and from me, we've reached an agreement in regards to a Russian sanction bill that will be considered on the floor later this week. Uh, we had deferred committee action pending your input as to whether there was any positive progress with your discussions with Russia as to uh, either their reductions in their affirmative attacks on our democratic institutions, their views in regards to Syria, their views in regards to Ukraine. Is there any positive message that you can report back to us? We have a large placemat of difficult issues with the Russians. You just cited a number of them. As I've said, our relationship's at an all-time low, and it's been deteriorating further. Our objective is to stabilize that. We are working in a couple of areas in particular to see if we can establish that there is a basis for reestablishing some type of working relationship with the Russian government that is in our interest. Uh, there are efforts underway in Syria specifically. Uh, those are, I would say, progressing in a positive way, but it is far too early in the process to say whether they're going to bear fruit. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, I, I, Liberty there, which, because of the way that today is going to go, I'm going to hold pretty firm to time here if we could. Senator Gardner, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary Tillerson, for your service and your time today. Uh, yesterday, I noted that uh, Secretary Mattis declared that North Korea was the most urgent threat to national security uh, facing the United States. I share your assessment that North Korea is the top national security concern for the United States and that exerting maximum pressure is the only way to force this regime to peacefully denuclearize. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to visit with the new South Korean government, and I hope that in the coming weeks, they will decide that this June summit between President Moon and President Trump is an opportunity to strengthen the U.S. Republic of Korea 
alliance. But I want to draw your and my colleagues' attention to two independent reports that have recently come out regarding North Korea. They've been released this past week. The first report was a report released by an independent organization named C4ADS identified, and this report identified over 5,000 Chinese companies that are doing business with North Korea. These Chinese companies are responsible for $7 billion in trade with North Korea, which represents 90% of North Korea's total global, tra global trade. Moreover, uh, the C4ADS report found that only 10 of these companies control 30% of Chinese exports to North Korea in 2016 alone. One of these companies, one, just one of those companies, controlled 10% of total imports from North Korea. Some of these companies were even found to have satellite offices here in the United States. The second report I want to highlight uh, was a report released by the Royal United Services Institute in the United Kingdom last week. It concluded, the report finds that not a single component of the United Nations sanctions against North Korea currently enjoys robust international implementation. In February of 2017, the UN Panel of Experts on North Korea similarly assessed that Pyongyang's illicit networks overseas were, quote, increasing in scale, scope, and sophistication. Do these reports undermine the administration's claim that we are exerting maximum pressure on Pyongyang? No, I think they shed a, a significant amount of light on how complex and difficult uh, applying pressure to North Korea is. But what we are doing is we are calling on everyone, obviously the Chinese government, we're calling on governments around the world. And there's not, a, there's not a bilateral discussion I have with any government anywhere in the world, whether it's in Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, uh, or, or Central and South America, that we do not talk about their relationship with North Korea and asking them to examine all of those ties and even when they say, oh, we only have $5 million worth of business, I say, make it two. So we're, we are at least at this stage making clear to people around the world and governments what the U.S. policy and position is. The report that you cite, which I have not had an opportunity to review in detail, but I am familiar with it, I think does illustrate just how sophisticated and complex getting at North Korea's sources of revenue are. That's why we're also working with China and Russia to put pressure more on how commodities are delivered into North Korea because that is very visible. The intricate financial networks that they have established around the world are challenging, but they're not impossible to address. So we're working closely with the Treasury Department where we can substantiate because we don't want to take inadvertent action against someone that we're not confident uh, is violating these sanctions. Uh, we are moving. We are, what, the approach is we reveal this to the host government. We say to them, we have this information. We're confident with this information. We're going to ask you to deal with this within your own country so that we're not, to the extent possible, interfering with their own uh, ability to manage this. But we've also told them, if you do not deal with it or if you do not want to deal with it, we will certainly be willing to deal with it ourselves. So we're in, a, we're in a stage where we're moving into this next effort of are we going to have to, in effect, start taking secondary actions because countries that we've provided information to either have not or are, or are unwilling to, don't have the ability to do that. But I think you have highlighted how challenging this is. That's why we're going to have to move 
to uh, work with others to begin to deny North Korea basic needs like crude oil supplies, uh, petroleum fuel supplies, things that are fairly, or at least they are easier, I don't want to say they're fairly, they are easier to monitor whether we're getting cooperation with people or not. And I, would you support a Iran-style global embargo on North Korea, gaining international community support to deny things like petroleum and other exports into North Korea? Well, clearly we'd have to work very closely and carefully with their two principal suppliers, which is China and Russia. Uh, so if China and Russia said, we're, not, we're never going to vote for a global embargo, and that has historically been their position, for reasons I think we all understand, uh, then it would be ineffective. Do you believe that China is living up to the agreements that they have made in conversations with President Trump? Uh, do you believe that they are living up to what they said they would do as it relates to North Korea? I would tell you it's uneven at this point. Because I think trade with China and North Korea has increased 40 percent just in the first quarter alone well, between China and North Korea. And some of that was prior to our conversations with the Chinese. They have taken steps visible steps that we can confirm. Uh, we are in discussions with them about entities inside of China. That Is there a timeline for those discussions and sanctions? We have another uh, high-level dialogue with the Chinese next week. This is going to be the first topic on the agenda. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Good timing, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, just a prefatory remark. As the longest-serving member of this uh, committee presently, uh, I can tell you that budget hearings are never necessarily about budgets, uh, and they're not about pot shots. Uh, getting to the truth about what an administration's views and policies are is a search for the truth and an understanding. And I know that there is an attempt to gloss over the administration's budget as it's dead on arrival, but a budget is a statement of values. And the administration has put forth a budget for the State Department that I don't think shares American values. So in that context, I'm particularly concerned, Mr. Secretary, and we appreciate you being here today, about the cuts to programs that support democracy, human rights, and good governance. While our support for democratic governments, independent media, and the rights of people to freely express themselves and organize are rooted in the core values that shape this great country, our support for these programs overseas is not solely in pursuit of lofty ideals. History has proven that over the long term, governments around the world with strong democratic institutions that respect the human rights of all their citizens are more stable, more prosperous, more resilient to the tentacles of radicalization and stability, and ultimately make better partners for the United States. This administration, despite statements to the contrary, seems to have deemed democracy and human rights low priority for American foreign policy. The administration has requested 31% less money for democracy, human rights, and governance programs. Furthermore, when heads of state from countries who have a long and visible history of repressing human rights make official state visits, human rights seem nowhere on the president's agenda. So I'm appalled that you have completely zeroed out, zeroed out the democracy assistance account. As brave citizens continue to risk their lives advocating for the basic freedoms we enjoy here, this budget sends a message that the United States is no longer on their side and abandoning the pursuit of justice. It effectively withdraws American leadership around the world, pushing the door open for Russia and China to increase their scope of influence. There is a direct connection between repressive actions domestically 
and adversarial actions abroad. The Russian government this week continued a long tradition of arresting and detaining peaceful opposition protesters. This is the same Russia that violated international order by invading and occupying Ukraine, spreading its repressive tactics. Now, in your opening statement to this committee at your confirmation hearing, you stated the following, quote, our approach to human rights begins by acknowledging that American leadership requires moral clarity. We do not face an either-or choice in defending global human rights. Our values are our interests when it comes to human rights and humanitarian assistance. So my question, Mr. Secretary, is simple. Does this administration believe that support of democracy and human rights is a reflection of American leadership and values? And a simple yes or no to that would, would be appreciated. Yes. Can, how can you say that, then, when the budget completely zeroes out assistance for democracy assistance? Well, there are other, as you know, there are other mechanisms and other parts of the budget where we continue to remain engaged with countries that are dealing with interference or, re, or repressive regimes, certainly areas of central, uh, I'm sorry, Eastern Europe that are being threatened. Uh, we have ensured that we can maintain our engagement there uh, in parts of Africa. There are countries that we've had to withdraw the support. And again, these are some of the hard choices that I mentioned in terms of where do we, where do we put our, the dollars we have to best use if, where we are making progress. But if we, this is a core value. the threats our, are the greatest. If this is a core value of our foreign policy, then ultimately zeroing out its account doesn't speak to that core value. Let me ask you uh, this. Uh, do you believe uh, uh, that the Russia sanctions that the Senate is about to vote on, uh, first of all, do you believe that the Iran sanctions bill, which has been out there for some time, is on the Senate floor? Do you believe the administration will support that legislation? I've not had a conversation directly with the president as we have not reviewed that in the interagency uh, discussion yet. What would, uh, what would I, be your I, advice to him? I think it looks pretty good to me, uh, and so I think you're going to find it receptive, but I don't want to speak on behalf of the president or the interagency process. I understand. What about Russia sanctions that have been agreed to in a bipartisan fashion? I've been reviewing those as they have emerged in the last 24 hours. I think uh, with respect to Russia, and the chairman and I have had discussions about this as well, and I've had discussions with others who have called to inquire, uh, I think what we would like is the flexibility to turn that heat up when we sense that our efforts with Russia, whether it be in Syria, uh, we have engagements that they have asked for us to engage with them on Ukraine. So we have some channels that are open where we're starting to talk, and I think what I wouldn't want to do has closed the channels off I understand uh, with uh, something new that's ill-timed. That they, they have done plenty already that, that they should be responded to. Finally, you said in your confirmation hearing that slavery and human tra trafficking have to be addressed and America has to lead. The president's budget calls for a drastic 68% cut in funding for the State Department's anti-trafficking efforts. How is it that we fight modern slavery when you make that type of cut? Again, we have to target the areas where we see the greatest risk and the, and the greatest opportunity to achieve some success, but also engage other countries in multilateral approaches, uh, which we are doing in our transcriminal organizations initiative with Mexico, the Mexican government, that's targeted at illicit narcotics, but it's also targeted at human trafficking and other illicit trade. So we've got to take, we've got to take new approaches that engage other countries who should share 
our same objectives for their part of the world, then we will move and try to engage others elsewhere and bring, keep the effort underway with the resources we have, but call on others to do more as well. Well, I hope, Mr. Chairman, we, we change the budget in a way that reflects the values that I know that in this particular case, the Chairman is very passionate about. And I appreciate you raising that point very much. Senator Young. Welcome, Mr. Secretary. I, I first want to commend you and the dedicated public servants of the, of the State Department for securing the release uh, of an American national from North Korea. I also want to applaud the Trump administration for your effort to reform our development assistance. Uh, to help inform that effort, on May 30th, S uh, Senator Shaheen and I announced that we're co-chairing a Center for Strategic and International Studies Congressional Task Force on reforming and, re and reorganizing uh, U.S. development assistance. We brought together a bipartisan group of top development uh, experts, former Bush and o Obama administration officials, retired senior foreign service officers of USAID and state, former ambassadors, former members of the National Security Council staff. And our goal is to provide recommendations to you regarding what optimal reform uh, and reorganization looks like, something uh, you, you've spoken to, you're, you're deeply interested in. We want to provide you some actionable steps uh, that this administration can, can take working with Congress. Uh, we've already met twice. We'll be meeting uh, a number of other times. And our plan is to issue a report in mid-July. So we'll have a work product very soon. Would you be willing, uh, Secretary Tillerson, to meet with me, Senator Shaheen, and some of these panelists to discuss uh, the findings of this task force, uh, the recommendations we put forward to improve the effectiveness, the efficiency, uh, and the accountability of our nation's uh, development assistance? Well, certainly we'd welcome the perspective of that group that you just described. Uh, we are also reaching out to former Foreign Service officers, retired ambassadors, to get them involved as well in terms of helping inform this initiative and effort. So yes, certainly would welcome the opportunity to do that and uh, to have some others that who, who are going to help us with this exercise also participate in that. I think it would be useful. Great. So I, I will look forward to sitting down with you and, and the others uh, we mentioned. Thank you so much. Um, as you know, Mr. Secretary, we're seeing a heartbreaking humanitarian crisis in, in four countries, Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and, and Yemen, the, the so-called four famines uh, humanitarian crisis. You may recall that on March 23rd, I handed you a letter signed by 10 members uh, of this committee asking uh, the Department of State to implement an urgent and comprehensive diplomatic surge uh, to address political obstacles uh, that are preventing the delivery of food in humanitarian supplies uh, to these countries, each of which have their own complexities and, and um, challenges. Since then, this committee has passed my resolution, uh, Senate Resolution 114, calling for the very same thing. Sadly, in the meantime, the humanitarian situations in, in many of these places have only gotten worse. Can you provide this committee with an update of what specific steps the Department of State has taken to address the political obstacles that are preventing the delivery of food and medicine in these four countries? Well, we have had discussions with the United Nations uh, people as well to get their perspectives. We've worked with some other partners in the region uh, and are, again, on this issue, we're trying to elicit participation by others, have others bring their own capacity as well. Uh, as you point out, in all these countries, the situation is quite dynamic, uh, and the circumstances on the ground 
does shift and it does move back and forth on us, which makes delivery of humanitarian assistance all the more difficult. Uh, we have more work to do, uh, obviously, in this regard, and we have more work to do with partners who have influence as well. Uh, so I would welcome the opportunity to get back to you with more details later uh, on, the, uh, on the circumstances there. They are extremely challenging because of the situation on the ground that is contributing to the famine itself. As, as you well know, it is not entirely driven by just uh, Mother Nature. It's driven by the conflict uh, situations in which we're dealing with as well. So very complex, um, sometimes quite challenging uh, to make a, a significant difference in, in each of these four countries. One area where, frankly, I, I see some low-hanging fruit, as it were, is Yemen, uh, arguably the greatest uh, humanitarian crisis of the four countries. Uh, roughly 20 million people uh, would be facing uh, near-death circumstances, either through starvation or lack of medical attention. Uh, thousands, uh, we can anticipate, will, will be infected with cholera. Uh, the situation goes on and on. No need for me to uh, lay out the parade of horribles in my limited time. But um, I've been working on this issue very directly for some time, trying to engage the administration's interest and attention on the matter. Uh, you visited with uh, the Saudi foreign minister this morning. You, of course, know the Saudi-led coalition is, is uh, engaged in uh, a regional conflict there. Uh, there's a civil war in Yemen, and I think there's, there's a real opportunity to mitigate some of the suffering while increasing, uh, furthering U.S. national security interests in, in that region. Were there any specific steps that uh, you asked of the Saudis uh, this morning uh, with respect to improving the humanitarian situation in Yemen? Uh, there, for example, there are four cranes in the major port of Hodeidah in Yemen, where 80 percent of, of uh, the, the incoming food and other supplies uh, are typically delivered. Um, those cranes paid for uh, in large measure by U.S. taxpayer dollars have not been delivered. Was that or anything else brought to the 40 foreign minister's attention, sir? Uh, we've held a quint on the Yemen situation. I've been in discussions with the Crown Prince of the Emirates. I had a, a fulsome meeting with him uh, and with the Saudis. The issue in the Port of Hudaydah is it is controlled today by the Houthi rebels. Uh, we are, have evaluated how do you get the aid delivered and then not have it stolen, which is what's happening. And so we're working on how to open up a secure delivery mechanism as well. We are actively working it. Uh, I'm very familiar with the situation with the cranes. We're very familiar with the situation of turning the operation of the port over to perhaps the United Nations. We're working through all of these in a very specific way to ensure that if we deliver aid, it ends up to the people that need it. I, I have some comebacks. Uh, re regrettably, I'm, I'm out of time, which is how this works. So I, I will I'm yield back. I'm happy to continue this with you Thank offline. You. Thank please, you, Mr. Secretary. Please call me. And I, I really appreciate your pursuit of these issues prior to today's vote. And, uh, I mean, I know you've had conversations about that and look forward to that outcome. So, yeah. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much, and uh, and I appreciate, Mr. Chairman, the regular order that you've created here so that we can question the Secretary on the uh, State Department uh, budget. Uh, I wish that there was regular order to deal with the health care bill. I wish that uh, uh, I wish that the Republican leadership 
uh, was having open hearings, public input, so that this massive uh, health care bill, which uh, is being constructed clandestinely, uh, could be seen not only by the American public, but by every member of the Senate before it's brought out to the Senate floor. Uh, it could lead to 23 million Americans losing their health insurance, uh, people losing their opioid um, uh, uh, coverage for, uh, for their illnesses in their own families, and it's just absolutely wrong. Uh, this is the way the Senate should operate. What they're doing with that health care uh, bill is absolutely, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's just wrong what they're doing, and we're, we're, we're going to have to continue to elevate that issue. So, Mr. Secretary, um, I want to follow up on what uh, Senator Gardner said, and uh, uh, this story by, um, uh, it, it is in the Washington Post today, uh, about C4A, D-esque, uh, that uh, uh, a, uh, a company that has put together a report called Risky Business, which uh, which tries to find the links between um, the China uh, government and its companies and the North Korean government, uh, and it has identified um, uh, key component companies that, if they were targeted, uh, could potentially cripple. Uh, the uh, networks because they are so intertwined with links right into the United States of America. Uh, and it could go a long way towards uh, choking off this global illicit uh, finance uh, system which the North Koreans have uh, constructed. Uh, they're centralized, they're limited, they're vulnerable. Uh, I really recommend this report to you, Mr. Secretary. I think that this is where we should be going. There's been a 37% increase year over year in trade between China and North Korea. There's no way they're going to respond uh, to, um, uh, to our request that they negotiate on the ballistic missile and nuclear question uh, unless they feel the pain of the noose tightening around their economy. This report today is a, is a blistering, scalding indictment of the lack of true enforcement of, uh, of the trade between China and North Korea uh, with actual financial benefits to flow to uh, individuals and companies in the United States. So I just strongly recommend that you become very familiar with this because I think it goes right to the core of what uh, we have to be concerned with. Um, illicit fentanyl. Uh, comes in from China, comes in from uh, Mexico. In the United States, um, last year, unbelievably, 59,000 people died from, um, from uh, uh, overdoses. Um, in Massachusetts, 2,000 people died from fentanyl um, uh, uh, in their system. Uh, if that was multiplied out by the whole country, that would be 70,000 Americans who died from fentanyl. The precursor chemicals come from China. They're moved to Mexico. Uh, then the Mexican gangs bring them up into the United States. Uh, this, for me, is the real terror on the streets of our country, this opioid epidemic. Uh, and And given the scope of the tragedy, uh, the Trump administration's proposed 32% cut to the budget of the Bureau of International Narcotics Control and Law Enforcement uh, is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, it just shows that instead of prioritizing an issue that goes right to the heart of what people are concerned about, where they want our State Department, where they want our law enforcement to be aimed, um, and, uh, 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 and instead we see this dramatic undermining 
uh, of the effort to stop these lethal drugs. Can you talk about why there would be a 32% cut, um, Mr. Secretary, uh, given the epidemic of fentanyl coming in from China and Mexico? Uh, well, Senator, I could not agree more with your assessment of the seriousness of the, of the threat of fentanyl as well as uh, other illicit narcotics. Uh, we have underway, as a result of uh, Secretary Kelly and mine's first bilateral visit to Mexico City, uh, one of the issues we, we had on our discussion early on was this trafficking that occurs either from Mexico or certainly through Mexico. I told my Mexican counterparts, it's time to stop playing small ball. We've got to start playing large ball. We have followed that up now with uh, two additional bilaterals, one most recently held here in Washington, where we are mapping out a different way of attacking the issue in a supply chain, value chain mechanism. Where are things produced? Where are they manufactured? Where are they uh, distributed and transport transported? How are they marketed? How are they delivered? So clearly there's parts of all of that that they own, there's parts of it we own together, and certainly the part that we own is how do we get at why we are the demand center for this. Have you, have we you brought, in, we have brought in Health and Human Services to work with us in this effort have, as have well. Have you raised this issue with your counterpart in the Chinese government? We have discussed with the Chinese you government, have? yes. Have you raised it yourself? In my discussion with the Chinese, I have talked to them about the illicit drug flow coming out of China through Fentanyl Mexico. Fentanyl specifically? Yes. Yeah, and what did they say? Well, obviously they say, yes, it's a serious problem. Yeah. Uh, yes, they will uh, crack down on that as well. Yeah, I think it's too early to tell what efforts and whether that's producing anything, but we're going to keep it in our dialogue with the Chinese that we need you to work on your source of supply in this, uh, with this particular uh, additive, this fentanyl additive, which is deadly. Yeah, the, uh, a kilo of heroin costs uh, $6,000, it can be sold for 80000 A kilo of fentanyl costs $6,000, it can be sold for $1.5 million. This is uh, a the big Chinese business. And the Chinese and Mexicans are rational economic actors. They're moving in that direction. Uh, and unless you get a positive response from the Chinese government and Mexican government, then we have to escalate this up to the very top of the list of issues that our country expects the Trump administration to deal with. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for that point, Senator Isaacs. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary, first of all, thank you for the great job. I don't, don't just say that in a pandering way. You've first six months have been very impressive, and I appreciate the first trip you took with the president. But the leadership you've shown the State Department, we're fortunate to have you in place, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Secondly, I have to, have, having reorganized a large company in the scale of a small business, but not a large company in the scale of ExxonMobil, you're in an unenviable position of answering budget questions in, the, in advance of the result being determined by how you reorganize the department and how they use the budget to the future. In fact, if anything, we, if we could have FY19 in front of us instead of 18, the questions would be totally different, I'm sure. But you don't get to do it that way. I think your statement, Senator Cardin, don't prejudge, don't think the train's left the station yet, and don't prejudge us, but give us the chance to do the job. And you made a great statement in your prepared remarks when you said the budget will will not determine our effectiveness, our people will. And I think the way you're approaching the reorganization of the department and getting all the facts in before you take any steps will serve well the reorganization that does take place in the State Department of the future. With that said, the hiring freeze that is currently in place has had an impact on the State Department's hiring of new foreign service officers. Is that not correct? Uh, well, as of today, 
Uh, Senator, we actually are up about 50 foreign service officers from the start of the year, about a half a percent. The effect will, will come later as what we're doing is just allowing normal attrition to bring the numbers down. Uh, and as we look forward, uh, we know we've got to continue to replenish our foreign service officer core. Uh, so we are still uh, interviewing people. And as we look ahead, we'll probably be looking at a one for three kind of replacement. But the Foreign Service, if, if, you, if we look further out, and I think we've said this publicly, uh, by the end of fiscal 18, we think we'll be down about 8% overall on permanent State Department uh, Foreign Service, Civil Service. Foreign Service is actually only going to be down about 4%. Civil Servants are going to be down about 12 So it's, it's being managed uh, in a deliberate way, but being very mindful of, of not diminishing uh, the the strength of our foreign service officers. I just didn't want us to get to a position where we had a brain drain that we couldn't make up for pretty quickly down the line because these people are important to the, vision, the visibility Indeed. of America overseas. Indeed. Secondly, I think you, there was a freeze. Was there a freeze on of relatives of employees of the State Department? Uh, employee uh, uh, State Department family members that are eligible to be hired in mission uh, we have a waiver process in place for that, and I have approved a number. The freeze does extend an answer to your question to all of those. But where we have critical missions like in Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, where we really need uh, these positions filled by family members who are willing to go to those tough locations, uh, I have been providing waivers in those circumstances. That's why I raised the point, because those people have invaluable experience that nobody else has and a reason to have a willingness to serve that nobody else would have as well, so they would be valuable to the state. Indeed. One, one example of what's been read in this, the budget by some people when they've seen consolidations of departments and responsibilities without the future result is you've got the Economic Support Fund and the Development Assistance Account merged into one fund without any change of the authorization for the fund, and a new name called the Economic Support called I'm sorry, called the uh, Economic Support and Development Fund. Will our 2019 show the results of these mergers, not just in terms of financially, but in terms of reauthorization for these departments? You're not just, just going to redo the budget, but you are, in fact, going to restructure these departments and the mission, too, I assume. That's, that, that would be the intent coming out of this redesign is we have, as all of you well know, we have a number of bureaus that have common missions. Some of them have overlapping missions. Uh, not just true within the State Department, but we have that with other agencies as well. This exercise is to also identify where we have overlapping missions with defense, agricultural department, commerce. Where do we have opportunities to achieve delivery on mission, do it perhaps more effectively because there is a common uh, greater coordination. Uh, all of that is yet to come, and that's why I said I don't want to foreclose anything at this point. In other words, the train hadn't left the station, so stay tuned. No, that's, uh, please get on the train with us. We need everybody on the train. Thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. Senator Murphy. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for being here, Mr. Secretary. Um, I, I want to echo the, the comments and concerns of uh, Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, to, to many of us and to many people who follow U.S. foreign policy, uh, the withdrawal of American leadership from the world in the first several months of the Trump administration looks deliberate, whether it be a proposed 32 percent cut to 
your department, which represents us in some of the most important forums and in every country around the world, whether it be the decision to back out of the most important international agreement that has been entered into over the course of the last decade, or whether it be this decision, whether it be deliberate or not, to uh, keep Assistant Secretary and Deputy Secretary positions unstaffed for a longer time than any of us can remember in any previous administration. And, you know, it's resulted in some fairly dramatic statements by leaders around the world, not the least of which was uh, Chancellor Merkel, who said um, uh, upon President Trump's uh, first foreign trip, uh, the culmination of it, she said, the times in which we can count on others are somewhat over, as I have experienced in the past few days. Um, so, you know, this this decision to, to take a big step back from U.S. leadership, it does seem deliberate. It does seem intentional. Um, and, you know, I can understand that, you know, that, that certainly could be a strategy to telegraph to the rest of the world that they need to make their own plans, that they need to form their own alliances, that they just simply aren't going to be able to rely on us. And so let me just ask you that simple question. Is this a deliberate strategy? Should our allies start making plans that rely less on U.S. leadership uh, and U.S. support? I guess, Senator, I take a completely counter view uh, to the way you've interpreted uh, the president's actions and what the administration has been uh, has had underway in discussions with our, many of our longstanding allies and friends. I think we're really leaning into U.S. leadership to make it clear to these longstanding allies and very important allies and friends of ours that the, the that America has been leading for for a very long time, and the American people have been reaching in their pockets and paying for this leadership for a very long time, and we're going to continue to be in this leadership role, but you, our allies, must do your part. You must do your share, and I think as, as there is, is a, a realistic and honest examination of what, American, what the American people have been asked to do relative to what some of our allies and partners have been asked to do, there's a lack of alignment there. And I think what our approach is, and I think, and I would tell you my interpretation of Chancellor Merkel's remark was, was for her to say to the German people, you need to understand we're going to have to do more than we've been doing because we have that responsibility now. We, we should not look to America to carry us on their backs every step of the way. That's part of the conversation that we've been trying to stimulate. And every leader is, has to express it to their own people in their own way. I would tell you, and NATO is a perfect example, and you're well aware of the demands we've been making of NATO members. Secretary General Stoltenberg has thanked us for taking this position. NATO has never seen a response from countries like they're seeing now because of this pressure that has been put on others. And it's just, it's a very open, honest conversation we're having with our friends and allies about how are we going to share this burden. We all, we all carry the burden. We're not going to set the burden down. We're not going to walk away. But we have to talk about how we're going to carry this burden going forward because the world has changed. The world has changed dramatically. Let me, I want to switch to a question um, about what's happening in Syria today, just to get you on the record. Um, in the last 30 days, the United States has come 
into conflict with Syrian forces, with forces aligned with the Assad regime and with his Iranian proxies three different times. We've taken offensive action uh, against those forces. Um, let me ask you this. Has the administration made a decision to actively contest territory inside Syria with the Assad regime? And what legal authorization uh, is the administration using uh, to take action uh, against the Syrian regime or against Iranian proxies inside Syria? Well, I don't want to get into detail since we're in an unclassed environment uh, here, but our mission and our purpose and reason for being in Syria is unchanged. We are there to defeat ISIS. And all of our efforts are focused on defeating ISIS, denying them of their caliphate. As you know, on both in Iraq and Syria, it is a coordinated effort. Uh, we are making tremendous progress in denying ISIS their caliphate and chasing them further down the lower Euphrates River Valley. That is the objective. That is why we are there. Would, uh, would you agree that there is no legal authorization granted to the administration by Congress to wage war against the Assad regime or against Iranian proxies? I would agree with that. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And I, I do uh, want to say that this work period, we plan to deal with an AUMF, and I thank everybody for their interest in that. Um, Senator Ray. Hey, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, so I wish Senator Markey had stayed. Uh, I understand that the memo went out to all the D's that they're supposed to raise health care. So I don't know what that had to do with our hearing today, but uh, Senator Markey raised uh, health care, and I should respond to him briefly. If I might, uh, he was beating his breast in righteous indignation that uh, our, we have working groups that are trying to resolve this mess that's called Obamacare, uh, and that uh, it's not that the stuff isn't getting out. I would remind him that 3,000 pages of that complex legislation was dropped on my desk 30 minutes before we voted on it in the middle of the night. And so uh, he's right. We should have uh, substantially more work on it than doing it in the middle of the night uh, like uh, happened with Obamacare, or we're going to wind up with the same mess. <sighs> Secretary Tillerson, uh, I've been very impressed with your service. Uh, there was a lot of criticism uh, of the president uh, over a lot of things, but particularly when he appointed you because of uh, the fact that you didn't come out of uh, what's traditionally been uh, diplomatic circles. And uh, I, I can tell you that uh, uh, seeing you work in the, in the months has been uh, a real pleasure while you've been on board because you've certainly picked this up. As you know, this is not uh, run-of-the-mill stuff when you're dealing in uh, diplomatic circles. So thank you for your service. Thank you for doing that. And, uh, and we're very proud of you. And it, it isn't just me. I, on my service here and on the Intelligence Committee, I deal with people from other countries all the time, and I'm telling you, you're getting high marks uh, wherever you put uh, footprints on the ground. So thank you for your service. Uh, um, Senator Murphy uh, brought up the comments by uh, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, Angela Merkel about uh, the uh, comments that, uh, that she made about people taking care of themselves. And um, I, I want to ask you a question that I, I've noticed. I I've been here over the last eight years meeting with, other, with people from other countries, and they were incredibly frustrated by our leading from behind or whatever you want. Doing nothing, I guess, is uh, what it was. After the president pulled the trigger twice, which you never hear about in the media anymore, once in Syria after the use of chemical weapons and then again in uh, uh, Afghanistan after one of our SEALs got killed, um, there was a marked 
change in my view of the attitude of particularly our allies and some that aren't particularly uh, allies of ours. Indeed, I met with some right after that uh, Syrian uh, episode, and they, some of them were positively giddy about the fact that uh, America was back. Are you finding the same thing as you travel around the world? Uh, Senator, I am. I think um, all of our allies and friends appreciate decisiveness. Uh, even if we make a decision they may not like or agree with, they appreciate decisiveness, so it's clear where we're going. Uh, they certainly on the security front and in our shared battle against uh, ISIS and counterterrorism, they are these our moves have been very welcome. I find our relationships to be quite strong. Uh, my discussions with my counterparts, whether they're foreign secretaries, foreign ministers, it's very open, it's very frank about where we're agreeing, where we're not, but there is a real common sense that U.S ally relationships are stronger today. We have our differences. We express them in different ways, but there's greater clarity to where we're going today than there has been in some time. That's what I hear. I, I hear the same thing, and uh, uh, that decisiveness that you talk about uh, has given them, in, in my judgment, uh, a lot stronger confidence in what they can expect of us. Uh, I, I saw confusion. I saw uh, uh, real uh, troubling uh, view from their point of view during the last eight years, and it, it has changed markedly since those two events that nobody ever uh, talks about. Uh, and by the way, have you are you aware of any use of uh, reports of use of chemical weapons in Syria since uh, since that episode? None that we're aware of, but we're watching it closely. Thank you. And uh, I would assume it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if we can drop 97 of them on a dime on in one of their uh, airfields that we can probably put one down the chimney in Damascus somewhere. Would that, be, uh, w would that be something that some reasonable person might conclude? We'd just like to know who's sitting next to the fireplace. <laughs> um, lastly, uh, Mr. Tillerson, those of us uh, that sit on this committee, uh, and, and for that matter, on the Intelligence Committee, w one of the things, and, I, and I, I, this is not something that's a huge part of this budget, but you know, there's money that goes to uh, assistance uh, to the Palestinian Authority. And the payments that have been made over the years uh, from some of that money to the Palestinian Liber uh, Liberation Organization that they use to pay families of suicide bombers, uh, I, I tell you, that's like great on a blackboard uh, as far as uh, a lot of us are concerned. Um, I'm sure that's on your radar, and I realize that there's other sides of that uh, as far as those payments uh, into, the, uh, into the West Bank or, or, or into uh, Gaza, but this is something that, uh, that really galls on us, and anything you can do about that uh, would, be, would be greatly appreciated. Well, let me assure you, Senator, it, it was discussed directly uh, when uh, President Abbas made his visit with his delegation to Washington the president raised it, but then I had a bilateral, much more detailed bilateral with him later that day, and I told him, you absolutely must stop making payments to family members of, quote, martyrs. I said, it's one thing to help orphans and, and children, but when you designate the payment for that act, that has to stop. They have changed their policy. At least I have been informed they've changed that policy, and they are, their intent is to cease the payments uh, to the family members of those who have committed murder or violence against others. 
Uh, so it is, we've been very clear with them that this is simply not acceptable uh, to us. It is certainly not acceptable to the American people. Well, and Mr. Abbas probably has something to say about the West Bank, but you get deep into Gaza, I don't know how much influence he's got there. But well, and I would say in Gaza we are working with others who have provided assistance and funding into Gaza, uh, much of which is, as you know, it's to relieve the humanitarian problem, rebuilding homes, hospitals, schools, but there's always a lot of leakage of that money. Yeah. And so we're working carefully with others as to how, how do you help. And the Israeli government is supportive of stabilizing Gaza by providing these type of humanitarian actions. We just can't have the money leaking in to the hands of those who, are, who would commit violence with it. Thanks for the job you're doing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I do want to thank you for bringing up the uh, Taylor Force uh, issue. And I just want to say to the committee that uh, it's my hope that before we go home for August recess that we will have passed out of committee a Taylor Force-like piece of legislation to address that issue. So thank you for raising it, Senator Coons. And thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you, Secretary Tillerson, for your service and the chance to be with you again. We'll be together later today in an appropriations subcommittee. So uh, in this context, I'll focus on some narrow questions that are about State Department functioning and authorization, if I might. Uh, let me just first more broadly say uh, my predecessor in the seat, uh, former Vice President Biden, often said, uh, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. And I am uh, gravely concerned that the proposed uh, deep cuts to development assistance and diplomacy um, suggest we don't value diplomacy and development as tools of foreign policy at a time when we badly need them and need more of them. Uh, I think uh, the growing threat we've seen, uh, the attack on our democracy by Russia, the destabilizing acts of North Korea, their nuclear program, and uh, the world's worst humanitarian and refugee crisis since the Second World War, uh, call for us um, to invest more in diplomacy and development, not to dramatically cut it, but I'll save the rest of that for the appropriations hearing this afternoon. Um, I understand from your testimony you're nearly done conducting a review um, of the whole State Department. Um, how soon can we expect nominations for the six regional bureaus? I'm concerned about um, some of the difficulty in moving forward key nominations. Uh, we're at about, I would say, the 50% mark in terms of undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, in terms of people that have been identified. Names are actually being submitted so they can begin to work their way through uh, the White House PPO process, but also for a lot of people, they have to get this paperwork behind them. And I would tell you that is no small challenge. Uh, as I check on the status of various people we have uh, recommended and nominated to the White House, what I'm finding is more often than not, it's the paperwork that is slowing them down. Um, in my own case, I had to hire eight people to help me get mine done. Most people can't afford to hire eight people to help them get their paperwork done, so it takes a very long time. Uh, but we're about 50% of the way through, and we have other names that are in process. Uh, what we're doing, we try to get the candidate list of people we think are, uh, would be useful to talk to down to a couple, and then we actually interview them face-to-face -face and then make a decision and submit them. So this is a, a pretty active process. It's one I sit down with the people that are helping me coordinate it about every 10 days just to see where are we, make decisions on other people. If we're hearing feedback, we've talked to folks. Maybe they don't want to do it after all. So it's moving, and that's about where we are within the, the State Department well, and the bureaus. It is uh, my hope and expectation, Mr. Secretary, that we'll work on a bipartisan basis to confirm qualified candidates who come forward. I'm concerned about the impact uh, on our 
embassies in a lot of places in the world that may not be top of the news but that need an assistant secretary to help coordinate policy. As I've traveled recently, uh, traveled to Uganda with uh, Chairman Corker not too long ago, uh, traveled to Vietnam with uh, Senator McCain recently, uh, I make my best efforts to visit with mid-level uh, foreign service officers and with the civil service folks who really run the department, and I'm concerned about the impact on morale of these proposed cuts. Um, one specific concern I've also got is about diversity. Uh, as part of the hiring freeze, I understand state has frozen the accession for all current Wrangell and Pickering fellows. Uh, and last week, all those current fellows were told these classes were on hold indefinitely. Uh, and this is one of the premier accession programs in the Foreign Service and has served as a, a key tool for improving diversity in the ranks of FSOs. Um, these actions taken to freeze the program, um, to me, uh, could indicate a disturbing lack of attention to the importance of diversity. What's your plans for these programs, and um, how do we uh, move forward on diversity initiatives um, taken by previous administrations that are worthy of continued effort? Well, I'll follow up on it, uh, Senator, but I don't think we've frozen the Wrangell and Pickering programs uh, in terms of people that are in process. We're, we're continuing, and we're going to continue to take uh, applicants as well. But let me follow up with you because I don't think uh, there's a, a full freeze in place. On My understanding those. is they're being asked to make very difficult choices in terms of seeking employment elsewhere while they wait for the next uh, opportunity for an entry-level class. And uh, you can imagine how someone uh, with a lot of skill and ability would find it quite difficult uh, to go take another job while waiting an indeterminate period uh, for an opening in the State Department. Um, in April, uh, I was one of a number of senators uh, on appropriations who pressed for additional money for emergency funds to address famine conditions in Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen, where there's roughly 20 million people at risk of starvation. Uh, and the congressional budget justification accompanying your FY18 request notes unusually high carryover funds. Um, I think the estimate was $1.3 billion in IDA funds. Um, why weren't these funds uh, obligated in the year they were appropriated by Congress, which was 16 and 17? And what is your longer-term goal? I'm concerned about impoundment and whether or not these funds, which are critically needed to address famine, uh, might instead be reprogrammed or returned as unobligated balances. Well, first, let me thank the Congress for the big plus-up in 2017 in recognition, as you point out, of some serious challenges around the world. I think, uh, Senator, our intention is to get that deployed in a way that the food shows up, the relief shows up where it, it is uh, needed. I think what you're seeing is how difficult it is to execute on some of these areas. And so having the money, having the funds are certainly appreciated and needed, but then we have to be able to deliver working with other aid agencies uh, and working with the situation on the ground to have the aid reach those most in need. Our expectation, as we reflected, just wanting to be com completely transparent with everyone, is that we're, we are pushing that out as quickly as we can effectively do that, but that we are going to have some carryover. As a result of the plus-up, I think when we get, a, get around, it's a broader budget uh, question as to, you know, it is difficult to execute a $55 billion budget for the organization. And so the, the statement that... that show me your funding and I'll show you your level of commitment, I do not agree with. Um, funding does not equal results. Show me your results and I'll tell you your commitment. And that's what we're trying to get the focus in the State Department is, what are the results? And then I'll tell you what I need to deliver on those results, giving me a pot of money and suggesting that that's, that confirms 
our success and our commitment is just simply, uh, I have to take exception to that. I've never had that experience anywhere. Mr. Secretary, we may share a view that um, once money is obligated, we also have an obligation to spend it in the most efficient way possible. Um, I don't think this is an either-or conversation. I think uh, the chairman and I have worked hard to try and find ways to improve the efficiency of delivery of food assistance, and having this funding in the IDA accounts, I believed was a way that it would be streamlined and move forward more efficiently. I didn't mean to suggest that simply spending proves our values. Spending efficiently is what proves our values. Cutting without a reasonable justification at a time of record famine, I also have some difficulties with. I look forward to our further conversation this afternoon about how we can be more efficient and effective in our support of development and diplomacy. And, and, I, and I agree with uh, delivering through the IDA program, we believe is also much more effective as well. We look Thank forward you. to working with it. Five to eight million people a day, five to eight million people a day, would being, being fed around the world, if we would break down these cartels that are controlling us right now and move funding appropriately to IDA, it's a shame. Same amount of dollars, not a penny more. Think about that. Five to eight million people a day. So thank you for that, Senator Rubio. Thank you for coming. How's it going? <laughs> you could have been HHS, you know, dealing with health and human services. You could have answered all the Obamacare questions today. But uh, uh, I, I want to start with uh, uh, the Asia, uh, the Asian continent. The uh, uh, news, I guess, today or yesterday about a $4.5 uh, billion, I guess, cut to Radio Free Asia. And that comes on the heels of what I'm, I'm, I hope you're aware of, an article in the Wall Street Journal from May 23rd about an interview that had been scheduled in the Mandarin language uh, broadcast with a Chinese real estate and investment tycoon about his claims of extensive corruption in the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese government got very upset about this interview. They actually issued a red notice on Interpol to try to wrap him up and the like. And then there was a dispute within the Voice of America. This interview was cut short. The person who conducted the interview, Sasha Gong, who I believe was the head of the Mandarin radio broadcast, is on suspension. And now there's this fight going on internally. So the, the two questions that I have, the first is the combination of the cuts and the interview, uh, you could assure us here today that our efforts to improve relations with China have nothing to do with either the budget cut and or the directive that was given to this reporter to cut the interview short. I can confirm that, to my knowledge, it had nothing to do with our relations with China. And uh, would you be supportive of an IG investigation in, uh, in, into this dispute that's occurring within that branch between the head of the Voice of America and this particular reporter? I'd like to look at it. I get a greater understanding of myself, but certainly if it would seem that there's been anything improperly done there, we should call for it. Yeah, I mean, the concern is basically that we cannot allow geopolitical um, pressures from China to influence our ability to broadcast truth, uh, and particularly in that language and, and, and Mandarin. And so, obviously, that we, we want to understand whether that's what would happen or not. And Strongly agree. Strongly agree. Now, obviously, you've heard from a lot of the members here about the budget situation. And look, I, I get it. We've got to do better. We've got to get more bang for our buck in terms of the money we invest in foreign aid and in foreign engagement. I'm a big believer in foreign engagement because it certainly has paid extraordinary dividends. And it's always important to remind people when it comes to foreign aid, quote unquote, it's less than 1% or about 1% of our budget. Some people think it's like 25 or 30. And it's brought real successes. And uh, I think South Korea is a success of that. You know, people forget 35, 40 years ago, South Korea's economy was smaller than North Korea's. It was a dictatorship. 
And today, I believe it's the 11th largest economy in the world, the strongest American ally, a vibrant democracy. And uh, nothing illustrates that better than that famous Google Earth picture of the darkness on the North Korean side and all the lights on the South Korean side, American engagement. In the Western Hemisphere, one of the best news stories from that engagement is Plan Colombia. And you, this state that was on the verge of failure, thanks to extraordinary bravery and courage and investment by the Colombians and U.S. support for that effort, brought them to a better place under President Uribe. As you're well aware, President Santos visited here a few weeks ago, and it's always been my preference and inclination uh, to be helpful because of the importance of our relationship with Colombia. That said, I left and open-minded, despite the fact that the Colombian people in a referendum rejected his peace deal. I've tried not to opine about internal matters in that country because they're an ally in a democracy. So he comes to Washington, and I, after the visit, I'm actually more concerned than I was before he came for a couple points. The first is I remain concerned about their creation of this special legal framework in their peace deal that basically puts the FARC on par with the Colombian government in terms of prosecuting people, which basically means human rights abusers prosecute them. But it basically means some of these people that were working with us to destroy these drug gangs and these guerrilla groups could be on trial for working with us to carry that mission out. We put the FARC at equal footing, not to mention they now become a political party. I'm concerned about uh, them stopping extraditions. As of the light, latest count, about 60 members of the FARC are potentially wanted for extradition because they violated our laws. And uh, they've even pushed at one point to delist the FARC as a terrorist organization, which they should always be on that list. Um, and the one that's really concerning is this massive surge in cocaine production in Colombia over the last year and a half, which perfectly coincides with President Santos' decision to suspend aerial eradication, which he chalks up to not wanting to spray in national parks, but I just advise him when he keeps saying that to members of Congress who know better, uh, that may have been an element of it, but that is not entirely the rationale. They stopped aerial eradication because he didn't want to upset the peace deal in the FARC. I raise all this because they're now coming back for additional money to help implement all of these things we have concerns about. So the peace deal belongs to the sovereign nation of Colombia, but our willing to participate and fund it depends on the conditions that we lay out and I just wanted to get your sense in the minute that we have remaining where we are in that process, what those conditions are, and in particular the delisting of the FARC, the release of uh, criminal Simon Trinidad who's in federal prison, the aerial eradication. In essence, why should the American taxpayer be paying for a deal that is flawed and actually in many ways could potentially undo the progress of Plan Colombia? Uh, well, all of the flaws that you've identified in the peace plan that they have, we would agree with. I think we see it the same way. Uh, we have had discussions with them, and as you point out, it's, I think it, it's a question of how far do we want to go in trying to interfere with or condition or in any way undo the plan that they have arrived at and the agreement they've arrived at with the FARC. I would comment on the spraying of the fields, and we had a long discussion about this because the numbers are just eye-popping in terms of what's happened uh, with the acreage uh, under cultivation in particular. Uh, they, they indicated they had in some sense created this problem of their own because they had been paying farmers for, to get out of production of, of cocaine fields and you know the supply fields and convert to other. And they, they halted that program while they were in the midst of these talks. And the, what the farmers did is they went out and planted more acreage so they could get more payments. Uh, so we have told them, though, we've got to get back to the spraying. We've got to get back to destroying these fields. 
that they are in a very bad place now in cocaine supply to the United States. And the president talked to President Santos directly about that. Uh, so we are going to work with them and how do we address that particular issue. And then in the other issues, it's a question of how heavily we want to condition our support to them in terms of making changes to a peace process that they've put together and understanding would that completely unwind it? What, what's the consequences of that? So share all of the concerns you have. We've highlighted to them to those concerns to them as well. Very troubling to us because uh, we, we were on a great track. It got, it kind of came off the track with the vote and this is where we are. Thank you. Very good. Good exchange. Senator Udall. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. I um, think everyone on this panel can agree that among our greatest uh, national security threats are nuclear proliferation from North Korea, as well as remnants of the AQ Khan group and Iran, among others. Uh, just yesterday, Secretary Mattis made it clear by stating the most urgent and dangerous threat to peace and security is North Korea, end quote. Given the importance of countering this threat, I would expect the State Department to prioritize nonproliferation and programs that support anti-terrorism. Yet the budget the President has presented to the Congress for consideration does the opposite. Instead of robustly funding these programs, this budget puts Americans at risk by cutting the nonproliferation and anti-terrorism, demining, and related programs that account for $333 million. Based on your personal review, have you directed the State Department to de-emphasize these areas? Is the official State Department position that these accounts are no longer a priority? Uh, no, Senator, we've not in any way uh, de-emphasized this. As you point out, uh, we agree North Korea is the greatest threat and that is why if you, if you look back at the early stages of the administration, that was the first foreign policy area that we dealt with at the State Department was North Korea. Uh, that process continues, as you well know. I think in terms of uh, our activities that you just listed, some of those we are working with uh, the Defense Department on areas of budgeting authority they have. How do we coordinate the most effective deployment of the resources available to us? to achieve common objectives. We're not supplanting, we're not looking for their money to supplant our money. Rather, we have, between Secretary Mattis and I, have developed a very, very close uh, process between our two uh, relative bu uh, relevant bureaus as to how we're putting our funds that are available to work, what funds do they have in the same geographic locations where they're trying to achieve uh, similar objectives. How do we manage that in a way that it continues to allow us to uh, address the issues that you're discussing there. But we have not de-emphasized the threat of nonproliferation. We have other parts of the world that this is a serious concern to us and are developing policy approaches there. Uh, again, these are just some of the difficult choices that have been made in where to, where to take certain budget reductions. Um, Mr. Secretary, I'd like to move to our own hemisphere here. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its support for engaging Cuba and during its launch of the U.S.-Cuba Business Council stated that, and I'm quoting here, we're facing a historic opportunity to support a vital and growing Cuban private sector, one that is defined 
by entrepreneurs whose expanding efforts show that the spirit of free enterprise is already taking hold in the country. In fact, uh, multiple states have already inked trade agreements with Cuba, increasing business opportunities for rural and urban areas alike, and the Cuban people themselves, including those who host tourists from the United States, either in uh, Cuenta Propistas or Airbnbs, have gained entrepreneurial experience and have begun the work to pull themselves out of poverty. Do you agree we should continue these efforts, or do you believe that we should return to the failed policies of the Cold War? Uh, Senator, what you described is the sunny side of the relationship, and it's all positive, and it is great, and it is good. There is the dark side, though, and that is that Cuba has failed to improve its own human rights record. Political opponents continue to be imprisoned. Dissidents continue to be jailed. Women and white continue to be harassed. And so what we have, have to achieve in approaching Cuba is if we're going to sustain the sunny side of this relationship, Cuba must, absolutely must, begin to address its human rights uh, challenges. Now, within that sunny side of the relationship, there are troubling elements to us that bring the relationship into conflict with existing statute obligations. And that is that as we're developing these business relationships and as we're enjoying the benefits on the economic and development side, are we inadvertently or directly providing financial support to the regime? Our view is we are. And the question is, how do we want to deal with that? How do we bring that back into compliance with longstanding statutory obligations? So we are examining that. We would love to keep the sunny side. We'd love to keep it in compliance with existing statute that doesn't lead to financial support for this, what we can only describe continues to be a very oppressive regime. The, the, um, Mr. Secretary, should the uh, United States make it easier or harder for U.S. companies to engage in Cuba to improve access to the Internet? Uh, do you believe, as many on this committee do, that access to the Internet is an important part of creating a modern and just society, including supporting nascent entrepreneurs? And finally, will you build on efforts from the previous administration to help U.S. companies do business in Cuba? We, we do support greater access to the Internet, not just for the commercial economic reasons, but we also think it's an important way people have access to voices of freedom and democracy and greater visibility. Uh, so we are supportive of that. We are supportive of continued economic development as long as it is done in full compliance with our existing statutes to not provide financial support to the regime. That's the focus of our current policy review. Yeah, the, the, and this isn't a question, it's just a final comment. The, the, if, if that's the sole test on financial support from the regime and if they're getting money from small businesses and everything, then it just seems to me we're headed down a path of, of once again closing down the abilities of these uh, uh, private businesses and Airbnbs and Quintropropistas and a lot of others to be out there and people be making a living and developing the private sector. I mean, as long as I've been working on this issue in the opening up. I mean, we've seen half a million people that are working there in the private sector. But if the test is going to be, do they give a single dime to the government, then we get ourselves, I think, in a situation where we go back to the old Cold War policy, which I, I think has been a real failure. But Well, Senator, I know you're not suggesting that we encourage private companies to violate the law. 
but it does require perhaps a more uh, thorough discussion among the Congress uh, and the executive over is that law still useful? But the law is there. We cannot ignore that law, and we cannot encourage people to violate that law. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you Senator Cardin for closing comments and observations. Yes, sir. Yeah, so first, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm going to ask consent that a letter uh, addressed to me from President Ron Daniels at Johns Hopkins University concerning global health budget uh, be included in the record. Without objection. And uh, two letters, or uh, two um, documents I've received from CARE USA, one's testimony for the record, the other assessment of human impacts of the budget, also be made part of our record. Without objection. And then two observations. One, uh, Mr. Secretary, in regards to the discussion with Senator Coons on the Pickering and Wrangell Fellows, there has been a historic challenge within the Department of State that predates your uh, stewardship on uh, attracting a diversified workforce. And this committee has weighed in on it. We've, we've uh, had legislation on it. I've introduced some legislation in this Congress. I would just urge you that in regards to the Pickering and the Wrangell Fellows, that is one of the avenues that have been a bright spot for diversity within the State Department and that your personal attention to allow that process to continue would be very important. The second uh, observation, the chairman's made this suggestion you have also working together as you go through the uh, reorganization at the State Department. I'll just give you one another example. Your, your budget pr proposes to eliminate development assistance account at USAID and economic support fund at State instead of creating a new economic support and development fund. It's, there's a cut in that, which is, we'll leave aside, but then the organizational aspects of how that would be done versus UA, USAID and state is something of interest to our committee. So I would just urge you to work with us on those issues because I think these are areas where we can work together to give you the type of accountability that we've all talked about that we want to see in the department. I look forward, look forward to that, Senator, and welcome it. Yeah, I just, uh, uh, in my closing observations and comments, want to say that I, I really do think that um, there are things that prevent the State Department from functioning as well as it could that we can help with. And I leaned over in a side conversation with Senator Cardin, and I know that y'all have been in to brief us both, your staff has, and briefed our staff as to how things are moving along. But uh, but we do look forward to working with you in that regard. And I think for this this year in particular, I think uh, people are going to want to be uh, very engaged in that um, in a way that I think we began to see the opportunities last year, but this year see tremendous opportunities in working with you in that regard. On the food aid component, if I could, um, it is, you know, the American farmer, uh, generally speaking, um, these are people that, patriotic, care about other people, proud of what they do. And uh, as I've talked with them uh, about what we're doing in food aid, it's, I get a response of disbelief. Um, they are unaware, totally unaware, that people who represent them here have forced U.S. commodities to be used when it's only one half of one percent of their entire output to be used in places that you cannot get U.S. commodities to. Uh, Senator Coons referred to Uganda. Uh, in some cases, it takes six months, believe it or not, when people are starving to get U.S. commodities to these places. And as you know, when we do that, 50% of it has to be used, uh, shipped by these, 
maritime entities that uh, it, it costs 40 percent more for us to do it that way. So I appreciate the comments you made about Ida and some of the things that we can do. I would just ask, uh, with all the things that you have going, that you sit down with Secretary Purdue also, because uh, I think as we talk to the grassroots farmers out there, again, they're in disbelief that we have a program that for the same amount of dollars could feed five to eight million more people a year, and yet people who, quote, purport to be representing their interest are keeping that from happening. So um, if we could, you know, if you could make that happen, I would appreciate it. I know we're planning to do the same. And then secondly, I know this Friday the President is going to be laying out Cuba policy. Um, I know Senator Udall uh, asked some questions about it. Can you give us some of the general contours you see shaping up relative to, to what that policy is going to be? Well, Senator, I, it is still in an interagency review going on actually today. My deputy's handling it for me since I'm here. Uh, but I think it is the general approach, if I can say that, is to allow as much of this continued commercial and engagement activity to go on as possible because we do see the sunny side as I described it. We see the benefits of that uh, to the Cuban people and, and to ultimately restoring somehow down the road getting to some point of normalization. But on the other hand, we think we have achieved very little in terms of changing the behavior of the regime in Cuba and its treatment of people and it has little incentive today to change that. And in fact, our concern is they may be one of the biggest beneficiaries of all of this, which just, again, uh, promotes uh, the continuance of that regime. So we are examining how, they, how the past policy was implemented, uh, how it was described to others, uh, so that it's, you know, what were people told, what assurances were given. But we think it is important that we take steps to restore the intent of the Helms-Burton legislation, which was to put pressure on the regime mm -hmm. to change. And that pressure has been, in our view, largely removed now. Mm -hmm. How do we re-engage on that and still allow as much of the sunny side of what's been done to be preserved? Uh, there are other areas of important diplomatic issues regionally that we want to engage with the Cuban regime on because we think uh, there may be some areas of common interest if we can establish what this relationship is going to be. So the policy takes all of these things into consideration. Well, look, I, uh, I was down there not long ago, and the, the, you know, the America has always felt if it could do more business with folks, then that would help pave the way towards uh, uh, Western values, capitalism, democracy, and those kinds of things. Uh, on the other hand, the, the obstinance that the government has, it's almost like it's uh, ingrained in them that whatever it is the United States wishes for them to do on human rights and other activities, they are not going to do, just, as, just to demonstrate that the revolution is still alive, still calling what's happening down there a blockade. So um, I look forward to engaging some this week uh, with you and others um, over what we ultimately do on Friday, and I understand the rub. Um, and I do hope we end up with a policy that over time uh, will cause the Cuban people themselves to be able to reach their aspirations. It's a country that has incredible potential. Um, 
like Venezuela, uh, with a terrible governance system that has held people back for years, and yet very intelligent, well-educated folks that could be in a very different place, standard of living-wise, if the policy would ever get right. Um, so with that, um, thank you for being here today. I think it's been a great hearing. Um, we're going to keep the record open until Thursday for written questions. I know you have a lot of responsibilities, but to the extent you could answer those fairly promptly, or if Mary or others can answer those fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. And uh, um, if you have any other comments you'd like to make, thank you, and uh, the meeting is adjourned.